And turn in your Bible to an all too familiar passage, John 3.16. There is a phrase that we sort of use in our common vernacular when we talk about things that are familiar. It's a phrase that I think in many ways is true. It's that familiarity breeds contempt. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've experienced the reason why that tends to be true. Like one of the great ways that people come to realize the truth of that sentence is when they have a really close high school friend that they go to college with and decide to become roommates with them. And it's somebody who you were really close friends with through all of high school and you hung out constantly, but there's a difference between hanging out and living with someone. And maybe like the first month is great and the second month is great, but by the third month of living with your really good friend, you start to see all of the things that your friend was able to hide from you when you guys finished hanging out. And you start to see all of the frustrating quirks, like the fact that they leave the cap off of their toothpaste or the fact that they eat your food even though you put your name on it or the fact, I, I'm not speaking from experience, I've never had a roommate, but, but I've heard a lot of horror stories about people who were really close with somebody until they lived with them and then they left hating them. Famili- familiarity breeds contempt. This happens for me, maybe not in terms of roommates, but this happened, happens multiple times for me in the form of road trips. Like I love the idea of road trips and I actually love road trips really and truly, but about five hours into any given road trip with any given group of people right in Southern Georgia, generally speaking, I start to develop a deep seated disdain for everyone in the car with me. And it's, it's never for the same reasons. It's one person keeps asking to go to the bathroom and another person just won't stop talking and another person wants to stop for snacks. And, and there's all of these different things that frustrate me about people that I can ignore until I'm stuck with them. F- familiarity breeds contempt. But I think there's another thing that familiarity does that we don't often acknowledge, which is that familiarity also breeds indifference. It's not just that being constantly exposed to something makes us bitter about it, but being constantly exposed to something causes us to lose sight of how tremendous that thing actually is. Over the summer, I bought a new car. And and what you should understand about my life up until this summer was that I've never had anything more than a $1,000 car. Like I'm pushing 30 and have never had anything but a $1,000 car. I bought a $1,000 car in high school and that lasted me until college, at which point that car broke and I had $1,000 in saving, and I bought another $1,000 car, and another one, and another one, and another one. And so it always ends really horribly, right? The $1,000 car breaks when I need it most. It breaks down right when something really important is happening in life. It breaks down right when I have no money. And so over the last like three or four years, I've been saving to get something other than a $1,000 car. Over the summer, finally made that decision. And like the first two or three months of me driving this new car, I was really excited about it. Like I cleaned it meticulously. I vacuumed it every week. I wouldn't eat in the car, which is a big deal for me. Like not even checkers or like Taco Bell French fries would I eat in the car. I actually remember like even now the first time that I spilled something in this new car, it was when I was turning off of MLK onto Kings Avenue and I went over that railroad track and I was late for work and I had coffee in my hand. And I don't know if you've ever seen like a fancy chef where they take like the saucer pan and they like flip it. That's what happened with my coffee, only it didn't land back in my cup, it landed on my seat. And I freaked out. 
Like I flipped, I had to repent over how angry I got. And I was just furious at the railroad track and I was angry at gravity and I was angry at everything that caused me to spill something in my brand new car. And it's been six months and I spilled something yesterday and it barely gotten no crap out of me. Like I just didn't care that much. The, the new car is messy because it's not really new anymore. I mean, it's still new in the sense that it's six months old, but I've been around it and exposed to it for so long that I'm kind of just indifferent to it. This is the danger, I think, that is before us with coming to the passage that we're in tonight, John 3.16. I don't think it's that, that any of us are so familiar with this passage that we hate it. I don't think it's familiarity that breeds contempt, but I do think that most of us are so familiar with this passage that it doesn't make us feel much of anything. And maybe there was a time when it did. Maybe there was a time 10, 15 years ago. Maybe there was a time when you were in elementary school and you first heard the gospel. Maybe there was a time where you saw somebody holding up a sign at a football game and you went and read John 3.16. There was a time where this meant something, but it's been a long time. And yet, John 3.16 is a passage that has gripped the minds and the imagination of Christians for thousands of years. And there's a reason for that. So my hope tonight, as we come to John 3.16, is that with the Spirit's help, we can shake off some of our indifference about this passage. We can see why it has meant so much to so many people. So let me read it for those who might have forgotten. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a single sentence in a much larger section of John's gospel. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been walking through John, maybe not systematically, but not systematically because we've been skipping passages, but we're walking through it sort of chapter by chapter. And it's important to kind of put this one sentence within the wider framework of what's actually going on. You might remember last week, Jesus visited Jerusalem. He was a little bit upset. He flipped some tables. I guess last week was actually Valentine's Day. So that's not really what happened. Two weeks ago, Jesus was upset and flipped some tables. And it seems as though Jesus is probably still in Jerusalem when John chapter three takes place. What actually is going on within sort of the, the context surrounding this is that there's a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night to say to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we encounter this man. He's sort of like Nathaniel in chapter two or chapter one of John's gospel. He seems honest. He seems like he, in some sense, believes that there's something to the message of Jesus, but he's not quite sure what it is, and he's got questions. But he also seems a little bit embarrassed of Jesus. You'll notice that Nicodemus visits Jesus by night. He doesn't walk up to Jesus after he's flipped some tables in the temple. He doesn't walk up to Jesus on the street. He visits Jesus under the cover of darkness for fear that people might see him associating himself with Jesus. And he says, we know that God has sent you because nobody would be doing the things you're doing if you hadn't been sent by God, but he's looking for clarity. Who are you? What, what are you about? What is your message? And what follows is Jesus teaching about all these things that you probably heard in Sunday school. You must be born again. 
Jesus says. He talks about the new birth. He talks about the role of the Holy Spirit. He talks about how the Old Testament symbolically points to him, referring to this statue of a serpent that Moses raised up. And he says, just like that statue was raised up, I have to be raised up. And then we come to this verse, the verse that you've heard so often, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But if you've got a red letter Bible, it might be misleading you here a little bit. You see, the red letter Bible, the idea is to put the words of Jesus in red so that you know, like, this is what Jesus said, and then this is sort of all of the surrounding stuff. But the problem with red letter Bibles is that the ancient world didn't have the equivalent of quotation marks. And so the way that you knew that the author was quoting somebody is when they set it up for you, like, and Jesus said, and then you know that this is Jesus talking. But the The problem is that most red-letter Bibles put John 3.16 in red, causing you to think that Jesus actually said that. And yet I don't actually think Jesus says John 3.16. Because when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, everything is in the present tense. And then when you get to John 3.16, it switches to the past tense. It's actually John commenting on what Jesus has said. Jesus gives this whole chunk of dialogue about the new birth, about the spirit, about how the Old Testament points to him. And then John steps in and goes, by the way, here's what all that means. And that's where John 3.16 comes from. And he begins by saying this, God so loved the world. And that phrase is something that, that almost doesn't even move us. It doesn't stir us. We don't think about it. We don't reflect on it. Because for us, especially in the culture that we've grown up in, this idea that God loves the world is sort of a no-brainer for us. No duh. Obviously, God loves the world. God is love. And we forget that that also is written by John. It seems obvious to us that God would love the world. That would have been shocking for all of John's readers because all of John's readers thought God loves Israel. But, but to broaden that scope to not just Israel, but to the whole of the world, that would have been an astounding statement. And yet that's not really even the point. You know, we hear that phrase and we think God so loved the world. Isn't it wonderful that God loves this big world of ours. Isn't it wonderful that 4.5 million billion people, million is like not even close to the world's population. Isn't it wonderful that God's love is so big that he loves all of these billions of people? That's what we think that John's getting at here. That's actually not what he's saying. Because when you read the rest of John's gospel and you read the rest of John's letters, so first, second, third John, Revelation, every time John talks about the world, he's not using it positively. The term world is actually always negative in John or almost always negative. So you might've noticed that really awkward passage that Katie read for us during worship where John says, don't love the world. It's because when John talks about the world, he's using it as a way of describing the systems of corruption and injustice and sin and rebellion that that pervade everything around us. All you have to do is turn on the TV and see the scandal and the evil and the wickedness. When John talks about the world, that's what he's pointing at. He says, don't love that. Don't participate in that. Don't celebrate that. And yet, John says, God loved the world. What he means by that is not to say, look at how many people God loves. Look at, how, look at the broad scope of God's love. Look at how many of these people that God cares about. What he actually means to say is, look at what evil people God still loves. It's not so many of people, it's so wicked of people. That in spite of all of this darkness, 
all of this wickedness, God actually loves the world. That's not an of course, as we so often respond. That's a shocking statement. Not that God loves so many, but that God loves such darkness. And yet love is is a pretty vague phrase, isn't it? Like we talk about love in our culture all the time. We, We profess to believe in love's power as a society. And at the same time, I always hear and read articles and and pop stars talk about love, and I just have no idea what they mean by that word. We use it really flippantly. Like, I love checkers fries. I can say that with, I'm not crossing any fingers. I love checkers fries. And yet my love for checkers fries is not the same thing as my love for my cat (laughs) or my parents. Maybe something that actually matters a little more. It's not the same as my love for Christ and the gospel. But we are a, we're a culture that's haunted and obsessed with the idea of love. This really awful band that most people don't listen to called the Beatles <laughs> has a song that says what the world needs now is love, or all you need is love, I'm sorry. There's a terrible movie called Interstellar that is, <laughs> yes, gotcha. Never even seen it. Haven't even watched Interstellar. <laughs> but the premise is that love is stronger than even time and space itself. And yet the Beatles and Interstellar, they they don't really try to define what love is. It's an idea that we somehow all believe in, but none of us can lay hold of concretely. And yet John wants to make love not just this ethereal idea out there. He wants us to see that love in the Christian faith is actually this concrete thing. One commentator on this, Kelly Capick, who's a Presbyterian theologian, he says a really good way of translating this is God loved the world in this way. Here is how God loved the world. Not some vague God loves the world in some ethereal sense, but here is how God loved the world. He gave his only son. The the Christian conviction is this, that the love of God is not ethereal, but it's concrete. The love of God is not distant, but it's incarnate. The love of God is not an idea, but it is a person. A person that we can lay hold of. John doesn't say, God loves you. Figure out what that means for yourself. John says, God loves you, and here's how you know that. It's Jesus. I don't know if you're like me, but I mean, I'll just be forthright. At this point in my life, I don't struggle so much with the existence of God. Like I don't, I don't wrestle with the question of whether there is a God. Every once in a while, I hear a pretty good argument that maybe I haven't heard before and it throws me for a loop for a couple days. Or, or I hear an argument against God rephrased in such a way that I go, hmm, maybe there's something to that. But, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm pretty confident that God exists. I'm also not really questioning or have never really questioned the idea of whether or not God is good in some vague and cosmic sense. But here's what I wrestle with mightily. I question constantly whether God's goodness is actually directed towards me. Like when life goes bad, I don't say God's not good, but I wonder if that good God really cares about me at all. That's where I wrestle. Maybe you feel the same way. And yet, John's response to us in chapter 3, verse 16 of his gospel is not just God loves you. No, he really, really loves you. 
Instead, he points to something as physical as the flesh of Jesus that was nailed to a cross and says, lest you ever doubt, here is a concrete sign that God has loved you in this way. Not in some vague Beatles interstellar sense, but in a physical concrete sense. And yet, there's something else to this phrase, God so loved the world that John holds out for us. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I wonder if you've considered that, right? Because when John talks about the world, he's talking about the systems that are in rebellion against him. He's talking about the systems of wickedness and injustice, the people and the powers that spit in his face. And yet, what does John say? God so loves this world that he gives. Like when I think about the people who've wronged me, when I think about how we respond when people wrong us, the general reaction is to withdraw. We're not going to text as much as we used to. We're not really going to hang out like we did in the past. Probably won't talk as much anymore. I may or may not, actually I won't because I don't have social media, may or may not block you on social media, right? That's, that's what we do, right? When people wrong us, when they metaphorically spit in our face, we step back. We take from them. We take from them our presence. We take from them our affection. We take from them all sorts of things. And yet to the world that dishonors God, God does not respond by withdrawing. He responds by stepping closer. He doesn't respond by taking. God loves the rebellious world by giving. God doesn't step away from the world and its darkness. He enters into it. God doesn't take from us for our rebellion. He gives us instead the greatest gift of all because he gives us himself. He doesn't withdraw. He draws closer. He doesn't take, he gives. God so loves that he gives so that things might be made right. That is so different from the way that our world operates. Like hypothetically speaking, um, if you were to get into a car accident and it were to be your fault, maybe you were texting or driving, maybe you were singing along to the latest and greatest Carly Rae Jepsen song um, or Taylor Swift or one of these pop singers. But if it's your fault and somebody actually gets hurt, you're probably going to end up in court. And you're going to end up in court if the legal system proceeds as it normally does, being required to pay back the person who you've wronged. In some sense, our legal system requires you to give a gift. It's a legally compelled gift, but it's a gift to make things right. It's a gift that's given with the intention of somehow setting right the wrong that you've done but it's the one who committed the wrong, giving it to the one who's been wronged. And yet in the economy of the gospel, the great mystery is this. God is the one who's been wronged. God is the one towards whom sin is directed. God is the one ultimately being rebelled against. And yet he's the one giving the gift to make things right. That is backwards from the way that our world works. If you're not a Christian, that has some radical implications for you. 
Because what John tells us is that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And what I fear is that culturally, we read the first half of that verse, and as we rejoice in what it says, our celebration drowns out the second half of that verse. God so loved the world, we hear that and we say, that's awesome. That, That means I'm great how I am. That means I can do what I want. That means I can believe what I will. That means I can keep thinking exactly how I'm thinking. And there's no way that God would ever judge me because God loves the world. And yet, if we read the rest of John 3.16, what it says is that God loved the world so much that he's provided a way that the world not stay what it is. It's not God loves the world as it is, but that God loves the world so much that the world by this great gift he gives might change. Martin Luther has this this incredible phrase. He says, the love of God doesn't find, but it creates that which is lovely to it. As we are, the world as it is, it is destined for judgment. As we are, we are destined to perish. That's the word that John uses. That that's where things are going apart from this gift that God gives. Emil Bruner, who's a New Testament scholar at Fuller, he says that, A helpful way to translate the the Greek of John 3.16 is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes into him would not perish. He says, we don't translate it that way because that's not how we talk. And yet there's something helpful there because in and of ourselves, all we have is death. In and of ourselves, what awaits us is ultimately destruction. And yet what John has said is in Christ is life. That's the name of this series, if you've been keeping up. It's called In Him is Life. And what John says in 3.16 is that we can believe by faith and be brought into Christ in whom there is life so that his death becomes ours, but more than that, his life becomes ours. That is the great call of the gospel. And yet this verse has implications for you if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, rather, it means something for us as believers. You might recall that Katie read for us this passage of scripture in Ephesians. Paul says, be imitators of God. What a terrifying thing to be called to. Like, if you don't tremble a little bit when you hear that, you must not think very highly of God because that's no easy task. And yet what Paul says is that we are to be imitators of God. And what we see here is that the way that God loves the world is by giving to it in the face of the fact that it is set against him. I don't know if you've noticed lately, it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian in our world. Culturally, it is becoming more and more controversial. It's not easy like it once was. It probably never should have been easy. And yet God loves the world that's set against him. God is for the world even as it is against him. God gives the inexpressible gift of the incarnate son, even as it rejects him. And so for us as Christians called to be imitators of God, what that means is that in some way, we have to be for the world, even if the world's not for us. We we have to be for the world, not in the sense that we approve of the darkness and the evil systems of injustice and rebellion that are present in it, but we have to, in the same way that God is for the world, be for the world even when the world is not particularly excited about us. And so we don't love the world 
as John says, by condoning its wickedness. But we do love the world by holding out to our friends and to our family the gift that God has given in Christ. That by faith in Jesus, we would not perish but have everlasting life. That is what John calls us to. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That's not simply a shot in the dark. That is a promise on which we rest. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you, but we love you because you first loved us. God, we thank you that even when we were in our darkness, you sent Christ that you have given us a gift even as we have rejected you as the giver of every good and perfect gift. Thank you for your kindness, your mercy, and your grace towards us. God, we pray that we would be a people who look to the world and hold out this gift of the gospel, that we hold it out to our friends, to our family, to the people that we go to class with, to our coworkers, knowing that even if it's rejected, nonetheless, we hold out the gospel even still. We ask that you'd give us the strength and conviction to do this. For the glory of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, we say amen.